Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton. I am incredibly excited this week to have uh, two guests on, uh, Scott Burns and Ian Lipkin. I'm going to let them introduce themselves very quickly. Scott, let's begin with you and why you're here today. Um, I am Scott Burns. I am a filmmaker, and I'm here today because about 10 or 11 years ago, I was the screenwriter um, on the film Contagion which is how I met Dr. Ian Lipkin. Ian. I, I'm a professor of epidemiology, neurology, and pathology at the Mammoth School of Public Health. And I'm here because uh, several years ago, I worked with Scott in helping to build this film. <laughs> which now feels more like a documentary than a film, but we will get there. Uh, Ian, I'm going to begin with you. So you actually have coronavirus, uh, and I want to see how you're doing how far into it you are, and how uh, much of a realization it was that if anyone could get it, if someone uh, like you could get it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I was exposed a little over two weeks ago, and uh, I was quite ill for several days. Today is actually the first day that I really feel as though I've rallied and come out the other end. It's a, it's a rugged disease. When one of the things that I've heard about from people who have had it, and it's of course hits everyone differently, is that there are certain days where you feel better, and then the next day you feel worse. And is do, are you kind of do you know if you're through it a little bit, or is it just you, only time will tell? Well, I had I had a more uh, consistent course. I became you know I had more and more disease over a period of about three or four days. Uh, the whole thing really began with a cough, then a splitting headache. And chills, night sweats, um, waking up with bedclothes soaked, that sort of thing. And then I'd say for the past uh, three or four days, I've been progressively stronger, able to walk a little further. And uh, last night I had minimal coughing, a little less so today. So I think I truly am at the end. I don't think there's been any sort of biphasic course at this point. But too many people do have modest improvement and then get worse again. So one question that I have from both for both of you, and maybe we'll start with Ian and then jump to Scott, is um, you guys both worked on this film 11 years ago, 10, 11 years ago. And when you watch it now, I, you know, I'm sure everyone jokes, oh, it's like a documentary. But there are parts in the film where you're talking about things that are literally happening in the way it's spreading and, and you know, the chaos and, and, and the type of uh, the way it attacks people and so on and so forth. We've known that something like this was going to come for a long time. Is that right? Or is it that we had no idea that it was ever going to be this bad? Or where does the line go from what we expected and what was kind of a Hollywood movie and where we are today? Want to take that, Scott? Um, I'll start, but you can certainly follow on. You know, the idea for this movie really happened around like breakfast with my father over years in the early aughts. Um, my father, who spent part of his life as a scientist and, and part of his life uh, doing other things, was always concerned about about the possibility of, of a disease. At, at that time, he and I spoke about avian flu, but that uh, the possibility of a virus jumping into the human species because they do throughout time. Um, so this is something that we've actually known about well before the movie was made. Um, 
And when Steven Soderbergh and I had finished a film called The Informant, and he asked me what I wanted to do next. And I said, I want to do a film about a pandemic, but instead of it being like Outbreak, which was a movie that, you know, most of us saw when we were growing up, um, I wanted to make it about the world today and about how a world where people travel across borders, you know, every day. And there are other aspects of our society, like the internet that, that allow information and misinformation to travel. But I wanted to look at all of the factors um, that exist now and, and kind of hypothesize of what, what that would look like. Um, and, you know, within that movie, put in some really solid science that would support the possibility of this. And that's what brought me initially to Larry Brilliant, who is an epidemiologist in San Francisco. And Larry pointed me towards Ian. And the deal that Ian and I made on the very first day that we met was that he would only help me if this was not going to be a typical Hollywood movie that, that played fast and loose with science and the facts and that you know, as I got into it, it became clear to me that there were plenty of really chilling um, and complicated issues that that one could find um, by sticking to the science. So that was sort of the, 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 the ground rules that, that Ian and I agreed to at the beginning. Ian, have you, you know, going off that, the when you're talking about these things for as long as you've been studying them and researching this, how close to what you predicted as a hypothesis for what could happen is the coronavirus? Well, the virus itself is, is a different type of virus, but with that exception, it's really quite similar. And it's true that for a long time, many people have known that something like this was possible. But I don't think that the majority of people are aware that this is possible. Just as people live on fault lines and don't really think about earthquakes or live in flood zones and don't consider the fact that they're going to have to, at some point, move their house. They, they operate as though this won't apply to them. And so we've not paid sufficient attention to the risk of pandemics, although many people theoretically recognize many years that it's possible. If we hadn't been thinking about this as possible, we would be better prepared than we are. We'd have the personal protective equipment, the tests, the ability to produce solutions that, you know, would, would help us reduce morbidity and mortality now. We selected a respiratory virus uh, because it would be something that would be capable of spreading around the world rapidly. And pandemic viruses are typically um, respiratory viruses. We did not use a coronavirus. We used instead a paramyxovirus, which is another type of respiratory virus. But with that exception, most of what you see is fairly uh, true to the current pandemic. Mm. And what Scott said earlier about wanting to make this realistic, um, I specifically did not want to be involved in an outbreak project because outbreak has this solution that comes when they shoot this monkey with a with a dart and suddenly the next day they've got monoclonal antibodies to treat the world 
Well, this is not, you know, first of all, it's implausible, but it also leads people to believe that we can come up with solutions that rapidly, uh, and we can't. So that would, you know, that in fact is, is, is a problem right now, because I think people have unrealistic expectations of how rapidly we will develop and deliver a vaccine. So, it, you know, we talk a lot in, you know, in Contagion about isolation. And this is an example of, of where this foretold what we're now dealing with. All we have at present is isolation, shelter in place, and testing. And we don't really even have the testing properly, especially in the United States. One, um, oh, I, what, <laughs> what's that? Good point. <laughs> good point. Well, and, um, and actually, I want to I want to just expand on on that point you just made, Nick. You know, yeah. one of the things because those two things are related, and and one of the things that concerns me the most right now is because we were so late in coming up with a consistent, um, you know, testing protocol and and getting that in the hands of of all of the states so that it could really do their work we're asking a lot of the people who are trying to help us to fly blind um because they don't have they don't have the numbers they should have had they don't have the data at their fingertips and what concerns me is that as we scale up testing we may decide we may you know i think we will learn that this disease is far more widespread than than anticipated. And so you have this increased testing going on at the same time as we're finally really committing to, you know, isolation and self-quarantine. And my fear is that people who don't understand that we were late to the party in terms of testing will begin to think that social distancing and staying at home and self-quarantine aren't effective because they're going to see numbers going up every week. And that would be a really, really disastrous conclusion for the public to reach. The numbers are going up right now, and, and Ian, correct me if I'm wrong, because we're finally, you know, gearing up testing. Um, and it's vital that people understand the only way we're going to get those numbers to flatten out is by staying at home right now. What's It's interesting you say that because I um, have a little world meter coronavirus case numbers uh, thing on my computer that's constantly running, which, which literally just passed a, a million um, as we're talking. Uh, and um, it is it's completely true. I think one of the things that's so so crazy about this virus and Ian, maybe you could talk to, talk to this, and I do have a, a specific question around this: is 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 the incubation period and, and and the fact that we, you know, we're we're a couple of weeks away from seeing where we really are. W- one of the questions I have related to that is when you look at like a disease like Ebola, um, we you have, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but as far as I'm aware, you have people kind of go through the same uh, the same illness uh, trajectory. You know, there's vomiting, there's coughing up blood, there's, you know, um, all these gastrointestinal things that happen. Um, 50% of people start to recover after a couple of weeks, and the other 50% go into a coma and die. And it's, the, it, it's, it's pretty much the same the same trajectory for people who get Ebola. But with, with coronavirus, 
you know, I have a friend who has it and he said, oh, it just felt like I had a cold. Another friend who said, oh, I felt like I had the flu. And another friend who uh, I know who was who was in the ICU on a ventilator, um, all within the same age. Is this abnormal for, for a, a virus to treat people differently? And do we have any idea why some people are affected differently than others? Identifying people who are infected with Ebola requires... Um, you know, a diagnostic test, some uh, contact tracing, uh, but it's typically not subtle. And you don't have a large population wandering around infected with this virus, transmitting it to people without even being aware that they have themselves been infected. This is why this virus is so insidious and so successful in its spread. The majority of people who transmit this virus are not aware that they've transmitted it, either because they have no signs of disease themselves or the symptoms are so mild that they just pass it off and think, you know, it's allergy season. I don't, you know, maybe I have a mild cold. And then, as you said, there are other individuals who have a very different response. There are obvious categories where people cannot handle uh, any sort of infection. Well, these are people with immunodeficiencies, people who have uh, structural abnormalities in their lungs or heart disease or diabetes or a number of, of issues that may be associated with inability to address these kinds of infections. Speaking of Larry Brigitte, he's calling me on the other line. <laughs> <laughs> Quite remarkable. There you go. There's a zeitgeist. Um, so... You know, so that is all that is all true. Um, and then there may be some other factors that uh, contribute as well. And they, for example, the size of the uh, of the inoculum that you receive, if you get a very large bolus, the virus may propagate so rapidly throughout your lungs that by the time you manifest an immune response, it's too late to actually have an impact in controlling it. There are some people who wind up clearing uh, the virus and having an exuberant immune response that is toxic and causes additional damage that's not really due to the virus per se, but to everything that's been set in motion, a cascade of inflammation that results in damage to the lungs and to other parts of the body as well. We're only just beginning to understand how this virus causes disease we don't have a lot of autopsies to study, and we only have very few animal model studies. Most of those have been representing work that's been done overseas, chiefly in China. Uh, but as they're releasing information, we're getting insights into people with mild disease and severe disease, because we're not that different, frankly, than monkeys in terms of how we present with these types of infections. So you've asked good questions, and I and I tell you that the answers are still incomplete. When you talk about, um, you know, one of the things that I have heard from other people I've spoken to um, is that, you know, one of the reasons why you had doctors and nurses that were dying in China was that they were, as you just mentioned, they were uh, exposed in large quantities to the virus and, and, and what you just said happened. It correct, like I'm just asking a, a. This is a totally stupid question that I'm sure everyone has thought of, but it's just a question that comes to mind. If that's the case, 
and we want to kind of reduce the deaths, why can't we do something similar to the flu, for example, and you give people... Uh, at least healthy people, um, at, you know, at the tiniest amount of the virus so that you can build up an immune system to it? Well, that presupposes that that's going to be a self-limited infection. And we don't know that. Mm-hmm. If you were to administer live virus to someone, they might develop full-blown COVID and die. Got it. There are studies that we've done with flu in healthy young volunteers using strains of influenza virus for which we have a known extremely effective drug, Oseltamivir, uh, which is known by the trade name Tamiflu. If we had such a drug that was, that was capable of completely neutralizing this infection immediately, then I think that this would be um, a potential route for not only um, you know, look to understanding the pathogenesis, how the virus causes disease, but it would allow us to much more rapidly develop a population that was immune to it that might serve as shock troops on the front lines, first responders, uh, police, and others. But we don't have anything like that at present. So people are working as rapidly as they can to safely deliver drugs and vaccines that will abort this pandemic. Scott, you mentioned to me at one point that there was a scene in the film that you wrote that didn't make it in where someone knocks on Matt Damon's door and offers them money for antibodies or something like that. Can you tell us a little bit about that theory? Um, oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> well, things that wind up on the cutting room floor wind up there for a reason. Um, yeah. You know, that that was the thing that we had talked about. And, you know, it, it's it's tricky to talk about about that kind of scientific work. Um, there are obviously a lot of ethical issues surrounding it. Um, you know, Ian is obviously better equipped to discuss the scientific possibilities. Um, so I think I'm going to defer to him about that. I think the the reason why um, Stephen and I decided it it shouldn't go in the movie is because it does open up a huge can of ethical worms um, that just didn't seem like something we wanted to get into in the film. Got it. But Ian, is is it a putting the ethics aside for a moment, or we can discuss the ethics too, but is something like that a possibility? I love that scene, <laughs> but I didn't have, but I didn't have a vote. So what can I say? Um, so this, this has actually come to uh, the fore in this outbreak. Plasma therapy is something that has been proposed by uh, a large team of investigators um, led really by a group at Johns Hopkins. Um, a friend of mine, Arturo Casadaval, who's been, uh, talking about this for many years, plasma therapy has been around since the late 1800s, and von Behring got a Nobel Prize for discovering the diphtheria antitoxin, which was essentially convalescent plasma. We're starting convalescent plasma trials in New York and in other locations as well, 
And the idea is simply that as somebody recovers from the infection and they make antibodies that will neutralize the virus, we don't yet know how effective they will be, either alone or in conjunction with other drugs. What they should be able to do, however, is to prevent infection in people who've recently been exposed, or they may be able to prevent extension of infection. And they could be very useful in healthcare workers who are about to become exposed. So it's not going to be all that different from the usual sorts of immunoglobulin preparations used to get before we had good vaccines for hepatitis A, for example, right? You used to get a hepatitis, you used to get um, an injection of uh, immunoglobulin before you would travel to someplace where you might be exposed to hepatitis A. Now we have a vaccine, so it's no longer necessary. We hear we would be collecting plasma from people who are hyperimmune to this virus. And I think that this is actually going to be an important arrow in our quiver. Hmm. How long does it take to discover if it's working? Something like that. Well, there, it depends on which application. So if you have an individual who's already hospitalized and who has a predictable course that's going to be downhill, and you can take that individual and another who you would randomize to receiving plasma that is not hyperimmune, you can find differences sometimes that appear as early as a day or two. Mm. If that group, however, is not protected, there may still be applications for plasma therapy where you have a hospital care worker or somebody who is a close contact of somebody who has disease, and you can test for whether or not it will prevent them developing disease. But that may take a longer period of time. You may have to wait in two weeks or maybe even three until you're certain that you have a large enough difference between the two groups, the one that gets the plasma or any other drug you decide to administer and the one who doesn't to see whether or not there's a protective effect. Scott, you, um, whenever you do your films, you do a tremendous amount of research into, you know, things that have happened in the past and speaking to people like Ian and, um, and, and so on. And, you know, one of the things that I always enjoy talking to you about when I'm talking about these issues, whether it's the report that you worked on or, or, um, or contagion or whatever is, is the number of, of folks you speak to. And, and one thing that I'm always curious about whenever I talk to, you know, authors and things like that is, what is the thing that is often the most surprising to you when you look at a, a quote-unquote fictional version of a story and and then the realistic version, the thing that's happening now? Is is there something that kind of stood out to you that you remembered from 10 years ago that you, that, that you worried about that actually became a reality other than, of course, the coronavirus itself, but like the, the reaction to it, the, the global aspect of it, the, the, the speed with which it spread? Is there anything that, that really stands out to you? Um, there's a, a few things. I remember, you know, the very first time I met Larry Brilliant, we had lunch and we found ourselves in the restroom afterwards at the same time washing our hands and we were having a conversation you know, Larry uh, was part of a team, um, I think led by D.A. Henderson, that helped eradicate smallpox from the face of the earth um, with his work in India in, in the 60s. 
Um, and Larry was telling me about that. And I turned off the water and he said, you didn't wash your thumbs. And I said, excuse me? Um, and he said, I, I was watching you and you wash your hands really well, but you, you don't really get your thumbs involved. Um, so that's, that was very haunting. I now, I now spend special, pay special attention to my, <laughs> my thumbs. But I think, you know, the thing that is most sort of startling to me, and, and it was something that, you know, came out of, you know, doing promotion for the film was the number of people who sort of, you know, were dismissive of the science, um, you know, or, or wondered if, if Steven and I had sort of, like you said, made the movie very Hollywood and, you know, um, you know, Steven Soderbergh is certainly not someone who is usually guilty of, of making, you know, conventional Hollywood decisions. Um, but even now, you know, when people speak to me or, you know, contact me and think that it's uncanny how the film, you know, is resembling what's happening, I find that response really troubling because it's not uncanny. It's exactly what um, the experts told me was going to happen. And so it's strange to me that, you know, on Instagram or something, someone will reach out to me and accuse me of being, you know, a prophet or some other conspiracy rather than just recognizing that I spoke to experts and these are the same experts who we're seeing in the media, people like Ian, um, people like Larry. Um, and, you know, so, you know, why are you still reluctant to believe them or, you know, when Anthony Fauci tells us this is really what we have to do to bend the curve, why are people still sort of, you know, fighting against that as though it can't possibly be true? So I guess my, my comment is if you find the movie to, to resemble reality, it's not coincidence, it's research. And that same research is available to every human being right now if they choose to, you know, to take it on. Um, Ian, you, um, you've studied West Nile virus, SARS, MERS, all these, you know, things that we've heard about in the news for many, many years, uh, bird flu and so on and so forth. And, and it feels like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but some of these things have just kind of gone away. Um, is, is that true? Is, has SARS and MERS and those things completely vanished or have they, did they, have enough people gotten it that they have become immune to it? And and if so, whatever the answer is to that, is there a world in which that happens with coronavirus where it kind of peters out? Or is the virus too good at doing what it does um, that that's not going to be the case? We continue to see cases of MERS in the Middle East. So that has not died out. And there are occasional sporadic cases of H5N1 bird flu, which have not moved in the general population like this one has. West Nile virus is still around. HIV is certainly still around. So these viruses don't typically disappear, except, you know, with Ebola. But even there, you can see it can periodically resurface, too. 
The difference with this virus is that it is so transmissible that I don't see it burning out even transiently. When we have a vaccine, we'll be able to stop it in its tracks. That said, there will continue to be cases. And if we become delinquent in vaccine and vaccination, it'll be back with a vengeance because it's capable of spreading new populations. Not everyone is going to be exposed. Even let's say if a third of the world's population is exposed this year, which is something that could happen. Um, there are still people who are going to be born next year who would be capable of becoming infected. And you've got two-thirds of the world population that won't yet have seen it. If you go back and look at the colonization of the New World, it was conquered largely by disease, right? You brought in influenza, measles, other things, essentially incapacitated the native population. And that's the way this thing is spreading worldwide in the developed and the developing world alike. We've never seen anything quite like it. We have no existing immunity to it. And it's going to continue to spread until we find a way to immunize ourselves and protect ourselves from future infection. I know that we talk a lot about people are constantly reference the Spanish flu, um, 1918 and 1919. And, and that, did that just go away or was that, was it that everyone on earth got it and no one else could get it? Like, how did that play itself out differently? There was a group of people, um, you know, a cohort who were probably infected in the 1880s with a similar virus who didn't have as devastating response to the flu that emerged in 1918 because they had some cross-reactive protective immunity. The people who came of age, you know, in adolescence and, you know, early adulthood you know, in 1918 were hit very, very hard because they'd never seen any influenza that was like the one that was circulating at that point. And what was unusual about the 1918 influenza outbreak is that if you look at the people who were hardest hit, they were people who were young and in the prime of life. Some of these people were exposed because of World War One, because you had these massive you know, gatherings of people on in camps and in transport ships who infected one another. And there was an enormous loss of life as a result. In this case, the young people seem to be relatively spared. But that's because a lot of the disease associated with this is regulated by the immune system. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. 
one thing that um, I would love to hear both of your thoughts on um, is we don't necessarily know how long we'll be quarantined and um, how society is going to be able to react to this. You know, I mean, I think it's it's um, we've, we're seeing economically how how devastating this is and we're seeing. Uh, you know, jobs numbers today, 6.6 million people filed for unemployment on top of the 3 million last week. And those numbers are going to continue to go up and lead to a depression and so on. And, and, and I think that, you know, those, the economic numbers are all are terrifying to look at and, and so on. But at the same time, there's the psychological aspect of all of this. And, and I'm curious if, if, um, and maybe Scott, you want to kind of jump off here, but how, is are we capable of of staying inside and waiting for eighteen months, or is there going to be a point where people are going to be like, "Look, I I need to go out and feed my family." I mean, I my my mother in law was at the grocery store uh, last week, and she the woman at the counter said, "You know, she didn't have a mask," and, and my mother in law said, "Aren't you worried you're going to get it?" And she said, "I'm more worried that I won't be able to pay my rent." And and I'm just curious, like, how you think that psychologically. Um, people will continue to react to this. Is there going to be a point where there's some pushback and people are going to be like, look, if I get it, I get it. I have to take the chance. Once there's more ventilators out there and more masks and things, will we start to see society somewhat creep back to not normal, but a, a tenth of a percent of normal or something? Well, you know, the the interesting you know thing about this, this version of the movie is, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be the screenwriter. We all are along with our neighbors. And so it is exactly what you're bringing up that will determine, you know, how long this goes on and how bad it gets. Um, and so that, you know, that, that sort of anybody's guess, but you know, what I have been told by Ian and Larry and others, um, is that, you know, a pandemic doesn't mean that it's everywhere at the same time in the same intensity. And one of the things that is is frightening to me is if you're in a community right now where you don't see um, a, a lot of virus going on, you may think, oh, it's not going to come here and New York is, is an outlier and Italy is an outlier. Um, and so I think we do need to get prepared for the fact that this is going to come in waves through our world and that that is, you know, is going to go on for quite some time. Um, and I think once people have an understanding of that and they feel some common cause, um, that that may help, you know, I was really heartened when I woke up this morning and read a couple of newspaper pieces saying that what we're doing in California is actually beginning to flatten the curve here. Um, and I hope that when people see that, you know, it's, there's some shared pride. I mean, the, the, the bad guy here is the virus and, you know, we need to focus on that rather than on, you know, I think what's become maybe an inordinate amount of blaming, um, because that's that's how we can we can help each other, you know, shelter in place. But I have to believe, and, and Ian may be able to speak to this better than I can. But just as a screenwriter, I assume that 
we get out of this not with a light switch where we all leave our houses on the same day and go back to our lives. I think, as Ian pointed out, there are going to be, you know, yeah, you can get, look at the number of people who die every day, but the number who are getting well is increasing, you know, every day as well and in a much higher number. And we need to find a way to get those people into the front lines because they're safe. Um, and we need to come up with a way of every business sector coming up with best practices so that we can identify those aspects of the economy that we can turn back on safely. Ian, anything to add to that? Well, the thing that the thing that I, I agree with everything that Scott has said, I'm just going to point out that we don't have a consistent national policy. Mm. And so where, you know, California um, is exemplary in its approach. That's not the case of many other locations. This is a legacy of the system of government that we have where states have an enormous amount of power. And some people are still neglecting the possibility that this will come to them and are not encouraging people to be safe. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, Scott and I and Larry and the you know, the original cast and, and Soderbergh all decided to push forward with this public health service announcement campaign with the hope that this would persuade people to do the right thing irrespective of, of what they heard. Now, this morning, um, I was asked by uh, a journalist to talk about the mega churches and some of them, uh, you know, are not paying attention to the, you know, the recommendations, which are, which are only recommendations that they really shut down these large gatherings of people, you know, which are opportunities, you know, for transmission of virus. And I decided to go back and look at what the various major religions are doing in this respect. So the Pope is moved largely online in terms of his, um, you know, his, you know, times when he addresses his followers. The two main rabbis in Israel have tried to tell people not to go to the Western Wall. Uh, King Salman in Saudi Arabia is discouraging pilgrims from visiting the two major sites um, in Saudi Arabia. And the Indian government is trying to close down Hindu shrines. So you see across a wide range of religions, people are trying to do something in this respect. But on the other hand, you have some of these megachurches in the United States that aren't taking this seriously at all. It's a problem of education. I mean, I I just want to follow on with that, you know, because when we did the movie, I remember we went down to the CDC in Atlanta and, you know, at that point in time, um, under a different administration, you know, they were, they were very prepared. It seemed to me they were, you know, really eager to help us tell a good public health story. Um, you know, it was, it was a pretty impressive situation, but one of the things that I learned was that, 
you know, we have 50 different states in this country and we have 50 different public health departments in those states. And, and, you know, without, as Ian pointed out, a consistent, you know, federal kind of mandate of what people have to do, it really makes some of these, you know, isolation conversations moot. You know, I was stunned yesterday to wake up and see, uh, you know, I think, you know, a mayor in Florida saying, well, why should we shut down every county if it's not in every county? And I just didn't understand how this guy didn't understand the logic that um, if you don't want it to be in the counties that don't have it yet, you have to shut down the state because, you know, the, the virus doesn't know where the county line is. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just absurd. And, you know, I was gratified that by the end of the day, the governor there finally, you know, in a state with so many vulnerable old people, you know, put put forth, you know, the mandate. And, you know, and you contrast that to, you know, it took them that long to do that in a state where there's a, a huge vulnerable population. In the meantime, the mayor here yesterday said, that some businesses have not shut down and they're non-essential businesses and that they will be issuing misdemeanors for those businesses that stay open and they're going to cut off their power and water. Um, Mm. And so, you know, it's fascinating to me and a little bit unfortunate that, you know, we don't have a consistent federal policy and, you know, we're in April now. We've known about this since January. Um, and we still can't, you know, get our shit together. It's it's astonishing to me. I totally agree. I remember a couple of weeks ago there was a, um, a Republican candidate in a, a local district who was tweeting that she had gone to Chili's uh, for dinner and, you know, screw the virus and so on and so forth. And after she got some backlash, responded and said, how can I give someone the virus if I don't have it? Uh, which pretty much summed up the stupidity some people are approaching this with. One thing, you know, my comment about there being 50 different, um, you know, public health, uh, you know, sorts of organizations in, in all 50 different states that, that each has its own department, wasn't to cast dispersions on the public health people because, as Ian said, they've been really consistent. The problem is when you have a different governor and different legislative bodies in those states sort of, you know, deciding what to do with that information and how to organize their society in the face of this. That's what's disconcerting to me. And that's why there needs to be a federal response um, that, you know, has been more robust and more consistent than what we've seen, because we can't leave it up to the states because, You know, this thing doesn't care about a state boundary. And so when you have a lieutenant governor in a place like Texas saying that our grandparents would be willing to die for the economy, and then you have a, you know, a governor like we do in, in California who wants to save the lives of as many people as possible and, and, you know, would not subscribe to, to that theory. Um, you know, that's what's terrifying to me right now. We need to understand that people in every state are our are, are fellow Americans and we need to have consistency 
because you know one of the things that that Larry Brilliant told me a long time ago, um, and you know, I think Ian will will agree. Larry is you know underneath everything an old hippie is he will say that the best tool we have right now is love and that Mm -hmm. if you love one another and you care about one another, then you can stop each other from getting sick. And that gets us, you know, back into the world faster. Um, And that's why, you know, as Ian said, Stephen and I and, and, and Ian and Larry and the cast of Contagion did these PSAs that give out best practices and they're on, um, the Mailman's School of Public Health website uh, um, right now, waiting for you. Um, I have a, a last couple of questions f- for you both. Um, let me let me just let me just yeah. say one thing though that I think, yeah. by way of clarification, I'm not aware of any public health official in any local, state, or federal agency who has diminished the importance of following the guidelines that everybody is aware of who watches you know the you know the briefings from mm. you know from the from the federal government these are decisions that are being made by politicians and leaders who are not not in public health the exception perhaps mm-hmm. would be people like Rand Paul who's a physician and should know better mhm and I and I don't understand why why he's behaved the way he has. But in terms of public health officials, you know, they're they're working very very hard at this. I'd say one thing with respect to New York, we were slow, um, in part because there was a concern that children who'd apply, who you know, who who require they thought school to get their breakfast and their lunches, the only nutrition they got would be losing that if they shut down the schools and that the parents would not be able to support themselves and there would be a risk to the grandparents. So none of these are easy solutions. And for people who are upper middle class or higher, you know, it's much easier for us than it is for people who are toward more toward the subsistence level or even just middle class mm. who are losing their jobs. It's going to be very difficult. When you, um, uh, Ian, I have a question that I think about constantly, and I'm sure everyone does. You know, you read these these reports of, um, you know, that on the the Princess cruise ship, 27 days later, the virus was still there. Uh, that it can live on your packages for 24 hours. That you, you know, it can live in the air for 27 hours and or 24 hours and travel 27 feet and all these things. And and my theory, I. Just as from a logical standpoint, is that I don't believe I don't feel like you're going to get the virus from you know from a a letter that your mail person drops off wearing gloves. Am I like am I wrong? Do I should you know I I wash my hands religiously. Um, I'm not going to the grocery store. Things get delivered. I wipe them down with with. Uh, um, uh, with a, a Clorox towel before I put them in the fridge, is am I, is there still a chance I could get it when I'm not leaving my house? Like, what as far as the the degree to which people should go? Should I be washing my ve- my vegetables with soap and water and my fruit? Like, wh- where's the line of of where uh, things you kind of are going too far or not far enough? Well, all I can tell you is what we know about the 
you know, the durability of the virus on various surfaces. We know that it can survive on plastic, on metal, on cloth, on paper for varying amounts of time. 72 hours is the outside uh, for all of those surfaces. If you are wiping down everything that's coming to your house in this way, and you're doing it correctly, then I don't see how you are going to become infected. That's, you know, um, but if you travel around the world, sometimes as, as I did, right, and you find yourself in a situation where you have no alternative, but to, you know, have a microphone hooked up or something else like that, or a makeup person who comes in and you wind up becoming inadvertently exposed, you will become infected. This is just the nature of, of, of the world that we live in at present. But you then ask yourself the following question. Does everyone have access to Clorox wipes? Yeah. Probably not. Nope. So, you know, this is another example of where there's going to be you know, an advantage to having resources. And I'm very uncomfortable, you know, with the concept that because people don't have resources, that they become at risk for losing their lives. Something that I find completely unacceptable in this country. And that's where we are. If you're somebody in a homeless shelter, what are you going to do? You're next to somebody who's infected? And you don't have access to these kinds of things that are required to protect yourself. Or if you're forced to go to a soup kitchen. You know, this is going to be an increasing problem for people who formerly didn't have to deal with these kinds of things. There are more and more people who are going to be driven out of the middle class into what amounts to a lower class situation where they are denied access to things that I think, you know, are every person's human right access mm. to you know to food and and clean places to sleep and clean air this is um this is a challenge to our whole way of life um last question for you both uh and i know this is it's a difficult thing to play the prediction game but how do you think this plays out um over the next 18 months is it that we um you know, millions and millions of Americans die, tens of millions of people around the globe. Is it that we, you know, social distancing starts to work and we make more ventilators and everyone starts wearing masks and, um, and it reduces that is, are we, you know, are we going to be inside for, for a month, three months, nine months, a year? Um, you know, how, how does this all play out? Do you think? Well, there's a scene in the movie where, you know, um, Matt Damon's daughter is having her her indoor prom, right? And her boyfriend shows up at the door and he's wearing a wristband that shows that he's been vaccinated. It would not surprise me at all if people began wearing wristbands that were approved by the government, some local authority, to show that, in fact, they are immune. So that people can identify themselves and have freedom to travel around in a way that other people don't. These are people who might serve on the front lines as police, firemen, people who handle certain kinds of essential aspects of utilities, people who work in healthcare industries. 
air traffic controllers, whatever the case may be. So I think we are going to start identifying people who we feel have been exposed and now don't have to worry about the risk of becoming infected and becoming ill. The time frame for the delivery of a vaccine is going to be shortened. It's going to be done in a way that it minimizes um, the risk. So the normal time frame is, you know, is longer than, as you say, 18 months. There are different phases for approving vaccines. You have an initial safety phase, then you have an efficacy phase, and then you have something that's a combination of the two where you have larger numbers of subjects. What this will require is that the government will share through this organization called BARDA. This has already been done with at least uh, two vaccine companies um, that I know well who have candidate vaccines, a way in which they take the vaccine through the safety phase, then they begin manufacturing it with the notion that as they're manufacturing it for distribution, they're going to complete as rapidly as they can. The efficacy testing and the additional safety testing so that by the time they have it ready for distribution, they will have completed that and that will shorten the time frame for delivery of the vaccine. How much will it shorten that time? It'll shorten it by several months. Not as much as people would like to see. It's not like we're going to knock something out in two months' time. But if we can shorten something down from two years to one year or to eight months, that would be something that would be unprecedented. People are trying to explore this by using animal models as surrogates for testing. And I'm optimistic that something like that will help be helpful. I don't see us really coming out of this toward normal normal lifestyle and a normal way of, of, you know, of moving through the world until we have an effective vaccine and until we have people immunized. Mm. I'm hopeful that people will not, you know, carry forward with this anti-vaccination, you know, mentality that has prevented mm-hmm. us from completely eliminating measles from the planet. Mm. I'm hopeful that this will, in fact, usher a new era of acceptance of vaccines and the importance of vaccines, because we're going to have to get nearly complete coverage of the population in order to get the herd immunity to protect those few people who, for various reasons, cannot take the vaccine. Mm. I think we're going to have drugs that are going to be useful for prevention of disease, like PrEP is for HIV and for treatment of people who've been exposed. One of these is going to be plasma therapy. There is no doubt, however, but for the next few months, our best protection is going to be this isolation protocol that Scott has been emphasizing. And we need to get everybody on board with that. Well, Thank you guys so much. This has been uh, uh, a fascinating, eye-opening conversation, and um, I'm going to you know, go watch Contagion again this weekend. <laughs> Thanks to my guests today, Scott Burns and Ian Lipkin. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. 
And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you to you, my listener. Wash your hands. Stay inside. Do all the good things that Ian said and Scott said. And we will uh, make it through this somehow or another. <laughs>